Welcome to a pod called Quest. I'm Christian Davenport, a.k.a. Bitter Ninja Science. I'm with Derek Darby, a.k.a. Fearless Watcher Sage. In our pod, we utilize what we refer to as our Ptolemaic framework to evaluate the topic of the day. This means we evaluate three subjects, politics, economics, and social cultural factors across three domains, the diagnosis of the problem, the prognosis of where we're going to go, and the means to get from one to the other. All right. Episode three, the election, the policing of black politics and how W.B. Du Bois's dark water provides the answer. Sage, get us started. Hey, what's happening, science? Hey, man. So we back again. We back at it. And uh, time to jump right in and think about the latest, uh, which is, of course, uh, this presidential election. Uh, every Everybody's attention has been on it. And uh as of the time of this recording, at least, we're still waiting for the final final outcome. Um, but after that outcome is uh, determined, I think we're going to have to wrestle with some important questions, including how to think about the current state of our democracy in the United States, mm. how to think about where we are, how to think about where some of us want to be in terms of making the democracy a better reflection of all that it promises and how to get us from where we are to where we want to be. And I think this becomes an especially difficult set of questions when we look at just how polarized the nation seems to be. Mm. And we, when we look at just the large number of people that voted, looks like we're going to have a record number of people that voted in this country, science, and how, how pretty damn close the vote count is. So I think so. I think one thing to do, just in sort of beginning our assessment of the current diagnosis that some people uh, are offering about where we stand, is to take into account the serious uh, divide in terms of people's uh, uh, having supported in large numbers both candidates. What you think about that? <laughs> Man, it's it's kind of freaky in many respects because I I, I didn't even imagine it would be this close, right? It's just mm-hmm. it's just um, it it almost reminds me of like um, you know, like when you think the fix is in with regards to a basketball game, and you're just like, I know they're just trying to get the game seven, but right. I'm like, we're in some places where like the the differential is like a thousand people or five thousand people, and that's just like I, you just have a, I just have a hard time imagining that things are things are that close, although. We're only talking like sixty-eight percent of all the people that could vote. So mm-hmm. yeah, kind of. I kind of wonder what's up with the, uh, the remaining thirty-two percent, and if they had kind of engaged exactly what things would look like and why they're sitting out. Mm-hmm. So I think there's um, there's that kind of broader question for me with regards mm-hmm. to that. But then also the lack of um, transparency, right? With regards mm-hmm. to, I now see Biden as kind of like the anti-Trump candidate. I'm like, mm-hmm. I, I don't. I'm not even quite sure what he's going to do or what mm-hmm. he, what he's planning to do. All I know is it's more like I'm not him. Mm-hmm. Is like is like his campaign approach, which is just kind of jacked up, and then watching Trump just declaring all types of lies and seeing the historically unprecedented element of people just news broadcast just going, "I know we're going to cut off the president right now, and that seems strange, but we just can't let him continue." Was just really weird to see, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, on this on this question, science of you know, you know, let's let's say Biden Biden wins. It, it, it looks to be the case that that he's probably going to win. I mean, the, the secret service certainly thinks, thinks so they've, they've now deployed 
uh, you know, uh, presidential uh, worthy protection to Biden and, and cleared the airspace over his home in Delaware. So certainly the, the system seems to be setting up to suggest that he's going to be the next president of the United States. Now, on this question of what he's going to do, I, I think there's this other question of what, what some of the pundits, uh, mm-hmm. what some of the election observers think that should be done in a, uh, during a Biden presidency. And one of the things that's making the rounds now on social media is uh, an exchange, uh, or I should say, you know, not so much an exchange, but uh, commentary that uh, Eddie Glau, uh, uh, a professor of uh, at Princeton University, mm-hmm. uh, provided on the CNN. I think you know, maybe it was yesterday or the day before uh, that apparently has has gotten a lot of attention, a uh, uh, lot lot of views. Uh, you know, you, you, you kind of keep up with the social media stuff more than I do, but I guess they use the term viral to describe yeah. when when something gets a lot of view, views. And so, uh, you know, I went and checked this out. And, f- and funny, I had a conversation with my my my, my spouse last night and, and it had come across her, her feed and she looked at it and, and we ended up talking a little bit about it. But I think a good place for us to start is with Glaude's diagnosis of where we are right now in America. Oh. Or lack thereof. Or, or well, okay, we'll see, we'll see. Yeah. So let's let's just say, for the sake of argument, diagnosis of where we are, yeah. um, and of course, given our sort of Ptolemaic framework, to to think about prognosis and means, you have to also think about diagnosis. So we'll certainly want to be critically thinking about the purported diagnosis and and what implications it has for how we think about where we go and how we get there. Yeah. So. I'll just start with, I guess, my take science mm-hmm. on mm-hmm. on that, and then let you let you sort of speak to it. Mm. Um, you know, I was I was reminded when I was you know, talking about this last night, or you know, over dinner as we watched the news, uh, my wife and I. Uh, you know, man, I I don't know about you, bro, but you know, I grew up in a in a, uh, the place where stars are born, according to MC Shan, Queens, <laughs> you know about the place where the stars yeah, are born. I'll yeah. take you back, man. Yeah. I hail from the bridge, man, QB. That's what's up. And so growing up in QB, man, I, you know, I had to go to Sunday school. It really wasn't a, a choice, man. It was mom saying, nah, you go on Sunday school. And I went to this, I went to this black Baptist church, man, community church of Astoria. And I used to have to go to Sunday school and, you know, and service. So it was a real, it was a real thing, man, in the crib when I was growing up. And I remember, man, some of the Sunday school lessons about, about the devil, about mm-hmm. devilish behavior. And we learned that, you know, the devil is divisive. The devil is a liar. The devil deceives, you know, the devil basically is content when people are at each other's throats and they're fighting each other and they're not working together. And I thought, you know, over the course of Trump's presidency, all of the ways in which, you know, some people might argue that some of the leadership skills were sort of things that might make you remember some of those Sunday school lessons. If you, if you didn't go to Sunday school, you, you see what I'm getting at, right? So, oh, yeah. And then, yeah. of course, I thought about, you know, back in the day when Obama was running the show, some people would say things like he's the Antichrist and all that. And I was like, Really? But then, you know, I'm just thinking about a certain way of leadership that we've seen over the last four years and, and the 
its resemblance to devilish behavior. Mm-hmm. And that really helped me better understand where Glaude was coming from in his very powerful sort of um, uh, short statement. And my take on it is this. You might say, well, the problem is we got a devil running the country <laughs> insofar <laughs> as the devil sort of manifests himself in dividing people, relishing in it and so forth and stirring up hatred. You know, we've heard this kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Now, it seems to me that Glaude's answer to that was, well, wait a minute, let's be careful. Let's pause here. The problem is not so much we got a devil running the White House, but the problem is that we got a devilish nation that has basically a long history of devilishness in virtue of how it was dealt specifically with black people and other people of Mm -hmm. color and others. And so I took it that his point was basically to just destroy this distinction between thinking all of our problems are about one particular leader versus thinking that our problems are most essentially about the nation itself. Mm -hmm. And once we turn to the nation itself, the question becomes, so what's the essential problem with the nation? And there, I think, Glaude's position is basically, we all know, it's the race problem. It's, 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 uh, it's the belief in white superiority. That's basically America's fundamental problem. That's his diagnosis. And so whatever we do in the way of prognosis and means has to sort of be done with that in mind, whether we're thinking about politics, uh, social cultural issues, we got to be thinking race first. We got to fly the race first flag. So mm-hmm. that was my take on, on Cloud. And of course, you know, a lot of people heard it. He got, you know, 20 plus million views. So what you think, Science? That's, that's my distinction, at least, to get us going on how to think about what Brother Cloud was arguing on CNN. No, I hear you, man. I mean, like the thing that tripped me out was just like it's it's um, the popular response to him was kind of like, uh, mm-hmm. oh, he speaks so well. I, I feel I feel moved by where he was going, and I, you know, maybe the younger me was more prone to be moved, but I'm I'm less prone to be moved now. But I was kind of like his discussions of sins and evil, and I'm just kind of like, um, okay, so is he suggesting that all whites participated in all evils? Because I'm just like, there's a book, Speak Against the Day, which is about white folk fighting against uh, Jim Crow, right? So I'm just like, okay, clearly this this homogenizing narrative he's providing wasn't working for me. And then, then he had like all whites who are, they're, they're anxious about the demographic shifts. And I'm just like, okay, well, maybe not there. But then he kind of discounted economic populism and just kind of suggested that it was more about race. And I'm like, um... I don't know that it's all about hatred and fear and that we need to basically address hatred and fear and that Trump was a manifestation of ugliness. I, I go along with that. Right. But, but I'm like, I didn't. And then they're trying to set white folk free too. It was, I, I wasn't buying a lot of it because I'm just kind of like, okay, so you mean to tell me that people are well aware of why they do the things that they do? I mean, there's enough information we have from political and social psych that many people don't know exactly what the reasons are for what they're doing. So his analysis seemed to kind of like gloss over these complexities. And I'm just like, what about false consciousness? What about people um, behaving in a particular way, but not necessarily knowing the root cause of why they're doing what they're doing? He wasn't addressing that at all. And I'm kind of like, um, I don't know that I'm just to say, I, I don't know that I would just privilege the racial analysis. So I'm not ready to just fly that flag to be like, oh, it's, it's all about racism. It's all about white supremacy. Mm. And 
I'm like, the only only time he mentioned economics in his com- commentary was to, to immediately move away from economic popul- populism and move into some kind of racial analysis. Uh, and so I'm like, I'm like, but what about the economic characteristics? What about the economic problems? What about the economic similarities that exist across the different populations? So I don't know that I'm just necessarily just ready to kind of like just go, okay, this is the this is a black, white, or this is a people of color versus white folk generalization. I wasn't going for that really. Okay, well. You know, you might not have been going for it, science, but at least 20 million plus people wanted to hear about it or listened in or tuned into <laughs> it. So, you know, I don't know, man. I, I ain't see what your numbers look like. Look like I don't know if you pushing 20 million, nor do I know if you're going to get them honorarium fees, man, that my brother's going to get. But but, yeah, in any, yeah. but, it, but in any event, I mean, what about this question? Now, remember, man, we, you know, the way we set things up, you know, because we're trying to just break it down. We're just trying to bring logic and data to bear on the quest for justice yep. in America and globally. Yep. Now, with respect to this question of diagnosis, again, the fundamental question is, what's wrong right now? What, what are our issues? What's the problems we face? Um, the, the, the great American artist uh, Norman Rockwell has this very famous painting uh, of, of uh, Ruby Bridges being escorted uh, to school by uh, uh, armed federal troops uh, during the era where schools were ha- having to be forcefully integrated. Mm-hmm. And the, the title of the piece is The Problem We All Live With, right? So the question is like, what are the problems, my brother, that we all live with? Now, I do think there's a question here. I mean, for people that identify themselves as progressive, the people on the progressive left, you do find a number of people saying, look, you know, the, the, the fundamental problem in America, for sure, is the problem of, again, white supremacy. And part of what that involves is, you know, um, when we peer into the souls of white folk, and that's a, that's a term that, of course, I'm, I'm borrowing from the great W.E.B. Du Bois, who I know we're going to talk about later this episode. Mm-hmm. When you peer into the souls of white folk, what you find is this embrace of this idea that white people are superior to darker peoples mm. and darker peoples come in all use, you know, from very dark to light. But there, whatever the case is, you have this, what Du Bois would say, this religion of whiteness mm. that has been uh, at the center of America's founding and its conception of itself and how it's operated. Now, what I hear people like Loud saying, and you know, he's certainly not the only one, I think there's an extent to which, you know, Brother Cube even, you know, in the black contract with America, and so far he's sort of putting blackness out there saying, look, you know, we got to think about the problems that black people in particular have suffered. There is this sense, man, that the race first flag is the right flag to fly in America if you understand how white supremacy has permeated the souls of white folk. Mm. Now, how do we sort of square that with the fact that we just see 60 plus million people voted for Donald Trump? Right. I mean, how, how we how we put them things together. Right. Is, is, is another question. Mm. Go ahead. Speak to me. 
Now I kind of want to I want to split that I want to split the the numbers that that, that mm. went for that went for Trump right because mm. I think one thing he's doing is mm. and it, and I don't think it's necessarily the, the race move but mm. we know that um, the deindustrialization that hit America in the seventies and eighties mm. that rocked that rocked white folk that mm. that 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 left them unemployed it's like um, what's the um, what's the movie um, mm. by uh, the the guy who did bowling for Columbine. Uh, Roger and me, uh, mm-hmm. perhaps his perhaps his best movie. Basically, was kind of like an articulation of like, okay, look, we have this. We have Flint, Michigan, and the auto industry was there. It was the mm-hmm. predominant employer for this whole community, and then they pulled out, and then all you see is devastation and unemployment. Mm-hmm. The real issue is just like, well, who was speaking to those people? Who was speaking mm-hmm. to those communities? Mm-hmm. And no one was speaking to them. So you know, I'm I'm going straight against the Glau argument, right? This is economic mm-hmm. populism. The reason mm-hmm. why. These particular white communities were basically willing and able to go along with somebody because they were talking to them. Mm. Trump was talking to them. He's just like, I see you. I hear your pain. And like, yeah, we should try to do something for you. We should try to get you some employment back. We should try to we should try to do something in Mm. that in that in that language. And so in many respects, I think it's a resonance that speaks Mm. to the basic human needs that folks have Mm. food. Mm shelter, not even meaningful employment, because that meaningful employment doesn't really matter much in America, mm. but it's like food, shelter, and, you know, some sense of, um, some sense of self. And so mm. he was speaking to that. And what I find fascinating about him is that he's able to kind of speak to them and yet help some billionaires continue to get mm. paid. Mm. So I'm just like, I'm like this, the, just his range of an ability to kind of pull these people together is phenomenal. But I don't think the, I don't think the billionaires supporting Trump are going along with this racism thing. It's about money for them, mm. but he's able to pull these poor um, working class whites along with him, but also kind of speak to their their economic desperation. And so, uh, mm. my 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 more my more favored kind of economic as opposed to cultural take on this is he's speaking to the impoverishment of folks. He's speaking to their desire to have some kind of semblance of a of a real kind of economic stake within the country and to basically from that have a future. But simultaneously kind of like take advantage of I, I think the reason why Cube or the reason why 50 Cent, the reason why mm. Little Wayne, the reason why these people are kind of speaking, it was also about money. Mm. Since they have some and they're trying to keep it, you know, it's just like it's like I, I think this economic analysis kind of like pulls together these disparate audiences, which is kind of like mm. otherwise you can't quite figure out exactly why some folks would be like cohering together where the white supremacy kind of argument, the the sins mm. and evils of white folk kind of thing doesn't do it. Cause I'm just like, that's just like a simplistic evaluation of like how slavery, uh, you know, was played out. I mean, there's a couple of large scale plantations and a bunch of white folk had nothing at all to do with enslavement. And did they benefit from this system? I'm like, yeah, we need to kind of like pull that stuff out. But I think there's just some homogenizing that's taking place on both sides. It's not really working. Oh man, that's powerful science, man. I, I mean, man, that's powerful, man. You, you know why we spend hours on on end, man, rapping off them just because, man, the knowledge is, is just so compelling. Once you sit down and try to come to terms with it, so let me let me let me do let me let me do us a little bit more with this point, man. Let me do something for us, man. So, yeah, I think this is profound. I mean, one of the things I hear you saying is like, with respect to. Um, politics, politics talk. And no, everybody's doing politics talk, right? But one of the things that we're doing, bro, is of course, we're we not doing politics talk 
just off the cuff. <laughs> we doing politics talk, trying to bring to bear the knowledge and the tools and the methods that we've 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 developed in the course of our journey as professional academics. Logic but and data. It, logic and data, bro. But of course, with some sort of appreciation and sensitivity toward the different audiences that that you know that are sort of at issue here, particularly you know people that are as you would say, struggling to try to put bread on the table, you know, given that we know something about that too on a, on a personal level. So, you know, one of the things I find interesting is that you're pointing to is like there, there is for sure some kind of void in progressive politics. Now, many people would say that dear brother Bernie Sanders was the candidate who came closest to trying to address some of the issues that you just laid out for us. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's why his following was like so huge, particularly among young people. I know you can do some numbers for us on that, but he had a significant following because he was very directly trying to deal with some of these economic issues. Now, another thing that's interesting with respect to the, you know, at least some of the black left is they certainly were very vocal the first time Trump ran for office about maybe sitting out the election because they were tired of the Democratic Party taking the black vote for granted. Mm, so mm. you have very prominent people um, kind of taking this position, including Eddie Cloud. If people go back and look at the record, he was one of the people that said, you know, I might, I might sit this one out, you know, because, you know, hey, we can't keep giving the Democrats our vote and they're and they not coming through for us. They, you know, we can't have that. So now we kind of, we have this new moment we're on the verge of electing another Democratic president. And the question becomes, okay, what do we want from the president? And now, if you run the sort of white supremacy argument, the, cult, the culturalist arguments, one thing you might think we get to ask when we get to the table is that we want some more monuments, right? Mm-hmm. We, want, we want to tear down some, of these, some more of these Confederate monuments. And, and, and then, you know, folks could feel a little bit better. They could come to terms with their racist past. And it could just be out and open. Now, you know, you and I both have had a lot to say about the monuments thing. I've written about it. So it's, it's, there's some arguments to be made on, on different sides of it. But the bigger point I, that you're making is that that's not what we should be thinking about if we do get to sit down at the table. If Cube yeah. gets his audience with Biden, that's really not, that shouldn't be top on the list of what to ask for. Yeah. Now, the question is, how do we recenter? our attention on the importance of making some of the economic arguments that you've laid out. And the question really is, is the black left, at least the black left that sort of has the mic right now, being somewhat irresponsible in pushing out the same story about the the fundamental evil of white supremacy and the need to sort of overthrow it in a way that's completely detached from the relationship Mm -hmm. between race and wealth. Mm, mm, mm. Speak to me, science. I mean, that's that's deep. I mean, I'm thinking of black market Marxism, Cedric Robinson. I mean, this is just Robin Kelly's work. There's so many. There's so many people that are speaking to that. And then the brother Aaron Hardison. We're gonna we're gonna address some of his stuff later about this um, pivot. But what I think is interesting is par- partly is contextualization, right? So mm. um, we get to the black, the so-called. I, I want to put so-called in front of this. The so-called, the so-called black left. 
the so-called black left. Because fundamentally, oh, okay. I'm just like, we mm. go back historically, right? We'll talk about Du Bois. We talk about Claudia Jones. We talk mm. about Mario Bedelli. There's a bunch of people we talk about who mm. I think more 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 naturally fit within this context of, of, uh, of the black left. But the mm. people we have now that are talking, I think part of the context within which they are speaking is on the heels of a massive persecution of people that spoke about politics and economics historically mm. from the United States government that just mm. systematically purged the American left, including mm. black folk, but white mm. folk, Latinos, native mm. people. I mean, the left was just purged to the extent to which people that were talking about secession, people that were talking about distribution of resources, people that were talking about nationhood, people that were doing that kind of talk, the, the other aspect of the left that is not present now, those folks were all about economic empowerment, even mm. Du Bois, right? Economic mm. empowerment, mm. colonialism, mm. imperialism, mm. and those kind of conversations have just been gutted. So the mm. people that are speaking now about culture seem to be speaking about something very different from this Mm. political and economic orientation that folks had previously. And, and thus it mm. seems to be, uh, you know, um, I'm, 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 I'm quite not sympathetic, but I understand kind of like where their approach is coming from, given how the politics and the economics orientation has been gutted and folks that are thinking about trying to survive and thrive within an environment are clearly going to stay away from those topics. And thus, when they're going on about the social cultural things like monuments and stuff that they're going on about, I'm kind of like, yeah, I kind of understand you. I disagree, but I understand kind of where you're coming from. Mm -hmm. In terms of, no, that's, that's insightful science. I mean, in, in terms of, I mean, I know you, you're very careful about this kind of thing because, you know, you, you're going you're gonna to want to attend to, to, to the evidence, um, such as, you know, such as it might be before you, yeah. before you make some of your claims, but just sort of as a hypothesis, like, so one question is if, if the black, if this, as you would say, the so-called black left, or at least the so-called black left that basically has the mic right now, maybe we could put yeah. it, put it, put it like that, that yeah. has the, that has the, the big mic right now is somewhat irresponsible. Like, how do you, how do you account for that? Now, one way to account for it, and this is the argument you just made, is if you look at the history of black radicalism, you look at Du Bois, you look at Claudia Jones. A lot of people don't know who the hell Claudia Jones is, but you look at how she was treated in the country um, for, you know, yeah, she was a communist, but really she was also talking about how to unify the 99 percent. Right. And that's that's sort of that's like a message that we need to hear more of. Um, mm -hmm. But. When you look at how Martin Luther King even was treated once he started speaking out against the war in Vietnam and, and when he started to talk about the importance of dealing with poor people's problems and, you know, when he started to visit sanitation workers, right? I mean, all, all things that were happening, you know, on the eve of his, of his tragic assassination. And when you look at even Malcolm X, right, after he made the Hodge to Mecca and he came back wanting us to think more about when he about the plight of you know a, a broader section of people right who are suffering from certain kinds of injustices, all of these figures have met in many instances with some sort of tragic ending, mm -hmm. right, and have been kind of expunged from our collective popular memory banks, with the exception of going into black bookstores in Harlem, right, where they had all these people you know prominently displayed. But but this is this is this is a one hypothesis. 
The other hypothesis is that culture pays, brother, right? I mean, yeah. culture pays, man. You could, you could really get paid because people want to hear this. Now, I'd be curious to know what you think about why it pays so well. I mean, one of the things that I know King talked about, and you know, we went through this when we talked together, my brother. He talked about like the easy thing to do and the harder thing to do. Mm-hmm. And I think translating, you know, let me, if, I, if I could take the liberty of making a translation here, just, just to put it plain, mm. King would say monuments are easy. Putting, po- putting money on people, putting money in people's pockets, putting, putting food on their, on their table is harder mm-hmm. because that requires more of a sacrifice. That's a bigger ax. Mm, mm, mm. And so maybe it's that the, the, the culture argument goes viral because people could already see down the road when you get to the, to the, to the means, it's, it's easier. Mm. What you think, Science? Speak to me, man. Give me, give me something to work with on this, man, that's rooted in some kind of evidence, man. But you know, I'll be stretching out. I'll just be saying shit sometime, man. But you'll be like, yo, you'll be like, yo, Sage, let me pull you back. I know I see the logic, man, but you got to have some science on it. So go ahead, man. Yeah. Give me something on that, man. I know I can't be far off, though. No, nah, I don't think you are, man. It's just like, um, what's interesting, right, is like um, if you take um, mm. historical conceptions of revolution, mm. I mean, it involved um, taking political power, the center of power, and also simultaneously taking um, ownership and modifying that and shifting it and making it more equitable in some way, shape or form. And historical revolutions have had major problems with um, the latter part, but, but nevertheless, that was part of their objective. And then also they're, they're restructuring senses of self and identity and at the mm. same time. And so the, the big revolutions, um, mm. China, America, France, Haiti, mm. they were leading to dramatic transformations. Okay, that, that that for me is like a that's a, that for me is a is a, is is the left or or potentially the right, depending upon what your objectives are. Kind of like mm. with once you've once you've taken once you've taken power and so forth. And mm. so, I think um, this gets back to this idea of the marketplace of ideas by Charles Lindblom, right? It's just like there's all these ideas about what could be done in terms of how could we restructure the political, economic, and social cultural world, mm. and that and so there's every idea that exists in this marketplace. But then you look at kind of like what people select from and partly what they select from is a function of what they think might work mm. or what might be induced. And so this guy named Herbert Gaines, who's got this piece where he talks about um, black um, black mobilization during the 60s and 70s. And the federal government was basically given money to different people and organizations who basically were advocating things that people could live with. Well, in the principles of kind of like evolution, right? So like through isomorphism, this this concept of you trying to survive in a, in a marketplace, mm. you're going to gravitate to the things that are going to be received better. Mm. And so we're in this weird space, right, where the political and economically oriented have been like persecuted. And then there was that there's that quote that I read to you um, by some by some um, um, politician now who basically was um, articulating the point that um with regards to the democratic successes, they were just like, okay, we need to never use the word socialism and socialist again. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. We need to stay away from that. Yeah. We need to stay away from that part of the marketplace in order to survive in the current political context. Mm-hmm. And that, that for me is very dangerous because that suggests, okay, we're going to stay away 
from the harder subjects, like you were saying, mm-hmm. we're going to go for the we're going to mm-hmm. go for the things that are doable. We're going to mm-hmm. go for the things that are realistic. We're mm-hmm. going to go mm-hmm. for the things that we actually have a chance of getting some resonance on. Mm-hmm. But those might not necessarily be the things that are most needed for people to survive. Mm-hmm. And that that then becomes scary because then there's this race to the possible. There's this mm-hmm. race towards the reasonable and. We could end up we could end up confronting the same problems that we've been confronting since 1865, right? Mm. I'm like, you know, it's just like um, so that becomes like really dangerous because we're not going towards the most important or the most effective ideas at resolving the problems of people getting food, clothing, and shelter. Mm. We're going for things that might be seem to be the easiest in many respects, and so you know, mm. brother Errol might make a comment or. Or Du Bois mm-hmm. even pushes it. This might be a gateway to getting to politics and economics, mm-hmm. but I don't see that second turn coming only because the political and economic depth of our conversation seemingly has been gutted since this persecution of the left, period. I'm not sure I completely get where you're coming from, or maybe I get it, but I'm also concerned that it sort of cuts against something I know I've argued for at great length in some of my mm-hmm. some of my work, especially some of my collaborative work. Hit it. So, and let me see what you think about this. So, I wrote this piece a couple of years ago. Man, I spent a long time on this piece. I co-wrote wrote this piece with um, a former colleague at the University of Kansas Law School, where I used to teach. I also I tell you another story one day about how I met the Chief Justice John Roberts. Um, interesting, oh. but. Yeah. So, so, but anyway, I, I call, I, 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 very close collaborator is, uh, uh, Richard Levy. Uh, 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 Richard is a a constitutional law scholar at the University of Kansas. I mean, just absolutely brilliant, you know, great human being. And and we, we did a lot of work together. So we published this piece. It was, it's called post-racial remedies. It's one of these monster law review articles, man. Mm -hmm. And, and we called it post-racial remedies. Now in hindsight, you know, as I think about why the damn paper isn't sort of more widely read, um, maybe the title and some was was a was a bit sort of problematic because I, <laughs> I bet some people saw that title and they thought, "Well, what are these folks about to argue for that America's post-racial and here are the remedies that we should sort of take up?" Mm. And and of course, you know, post-racial sort of certainly in in, in left circles is like. A nasty word, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, and and for our listeners, what's that mean? It means like, you know, Obama. We had Obama. You know, we got Oprah. We got LeBron. You know, we got Professor Davenport. <laughs> you know, we got we got all, we got all these black folk that then sort of climbed the ladder. You know, George Jefferson sort of started before everybody else, and they went up the ladder. <laughs> then you got Chappelle, you got Murphy, you got Chris Rock, you know, you got everybody. And then, you know, like I said, you got Brother Davenport. You know, they didn't work their way up. Mm. And so everything's good now. And, you know, we, you know, we tired. We tired of hearing this stuff about race and white supremacy. And this this not the problem no more. When we look around and look at all these exceptional black folks. So people probably saw that title and said, you know. These authors have drunk that Kool-Aid and we don't, we don't want no part of that. But really what, what we were getting at, science, is that there are a lot of people who believe that yeah, in the United yeah. States. And I think a lot of them are in the 60 plus million that voted for Donald Trump. And no so joke. the question is, if people believe that, how should we proceed? 
Now, my response to what you just said is, well, look, I think there is some merit in dealing with the reality of where we are. We are in a deeply divided nation. And I granted science that there are different ways of sort of carving up the group of 60 million. They're not monolithic, certainly. But I guarantee you a large number of them folks have certainly drunk that post-racial Kool-Aid. And that partly accounts for their openness to a candidate like Trump, um, who's thinking about diminishing that sort of concern, pointing out the virtues of the Republican Party and expanding its diversity, right? For example, and then you get select black folk that come, you know, with the MAGA hat to the, to the Oval Office. You, mm-hmm. got, you got presidents of HBCUs because they really starve for cash that also sit in the Oval Office, right? So you, you, you're given sort of, people have given him sort of a platform to claim that he's been good for black people, mm-hmm. right? So our point, however, is that because people have drunk that post-racial Kool-Aid, we got to ask ourselves, how can we go forward? Now, it might be, man, that we got to go forward by getting some low-hanging fruit. So, for example, if we could get some criminal justice reform by working with some of the conservative evangelicals in Texas, why shouldn't we, right? If, mm. if somehow they've gotten their ideology to allow them to try to get some brothers and sisters out of jail, right, why wouldn't we do that, right? Figure out a way to do that. So I'm not so sure I want to dismiss the value of getting the low-hanging fruit, even if we think at the end of the day, we got to go for the jugular and get to the, to the root of the problem, which is the economic system, if you see where mm. I'm coming from. Go ahead, speak to me, Science, because I don't know if we see eye to eye on this, man. No, nah, I think I'm a jugular brother at this point. I, yeah. I think, um, uh, I mean, maybe, you know, Maybe at a certain age, you're kind of like you can see the end or something like that. So you're just like, you know, I'd like to go. I'd like to be effective. I'm, I'm done with this incremental business. I'm done with like trying to like let's lightly touch around some topics and maybe it possibly it could get converted and turn into this, especially in the context of a Democratic president potentially coming in, which generally tends to diffuse popular mobilization because people are just like, OK, they got me covered. I can get back to regular life. Let me go play some games or something. So I'm just like, I wish to go as clearly as possible to the topic that is most central to all of it. Mm. But then related to that, this guy, William Riker, wrote this book called The Art of Political Manipulation. And his whole idea is you basically find the single dimension that you can find that people are cohered on. And then you identify that inflection point that will slice and divide that thing so that that particular monolithic conception is then gone. Mm. And so it could be that there's there's a there's a there's the there's the post racial Kool Aid element, and and maybe Cloud and them are trying to push back against that. Be like, no, 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 it, it, we need to, we need to focus on this dynamic. It's uh-huh. not post racial. It's still it's still racial. Uh-huh. Whereas I'm suggesting if you if you're putting a kind of a capitalistic or class kind of like uh-huh. cleavage in there, uh-huh. that that's, that serves as the basis for potentially unifying the ninety nine percent. That's bringing back together a bunch of disparate people who have just uh-huh. simply suffered from the political and economic systems that we have in place, uh-huh. and that will then reconfigure exactly how people think about enemies and friends and Mm -hmm. allies. And that shift might be necessary because I'm not, I don't quite see exactly what's the allyship around the white supremacist argument. Mm -hmm. What are white supposed to do? I mean, Mm -hmm. what are poor whites supposed to do? What are, what are anyone who's victimized supposed to do while black folk have their moment and they get their heads up on top of statues and we're back to wearing dashikis and everyone's kind of like chilling 
and like feeling good about each other. You don't think had- the Speaker of the House, man, should have had that dashiki on is what you're saying, man, after <laughs> Brother Lewis passed? Is that what you're saying, man? That that Nancy Pelosi shouldn't have been rocking that dashiki, man? I'm just saying we needed well, Kent, the deep- You know, the Kente cloth, I'm sorry, the Kente cloth, you don't think she should have rocked the Kente cloth, brother? I'm just saying the Kente cloth is irrelevant to people mm. getting food, clothing, and shelter. Mm. And I'm just like, mm. you know, we need to focus on, you know, What's the black poor look like? Um, mm. What's the black lower working class look like? What's working class look like? What's work look like in the current moment? I mean, people get all excited about the employment rate and so forth. I'm like, but but what are people employed doing? Mm. When you look at what people were doing when they were working in factories and so forth in Detroit, there was a certain degree of pride with regards to kind of the things that they were producing and how they were contributing to mm the global economy in place. Now we have all, we have a bunch of temporary work. We have a bunch of superficial sales kind of service type of dynamics where people don't feel as if they're actually Mm. contributing to something. Their sense of identity is kind of like diminished because the work is not leading to thriving. And like, we're Mm. not having that conversation. People just happy to get, Oh, you know, you got four, you got, you got X number of dollars per hour. You have next number of hours. Therefore you're okay. And I'm like, no, that's not really what thriving is about. So Mm. we need to shift that conversation and thriving might be connected to some of this symbolic representation stuff and some of the cultural stuff but but i just get back to this whole dynamic of and maybe maybe i'm thinking about we talked about this as well i'm Mm. thinking about the distribution of folks that are in my own my family right it's Mm. just like i have some people who like they don't have jobs they don't have health care they don't have any sense of security or purpose and i'm just Mm. like i'm like okay how do we address those particular needs. And I've, I view myself, you know, very much as the kind of, what you identify the, the exceptional black folk. I'm like, I think in many respects, my, my particular path to how I got to be who I was is so non-representative of black folks. I mean, right. like my mom is a dancer. She was without an alley. I hung out with people who danced and made their own clothes most of the mm. time growing up. I'm just like, this is not representative of how most black people are, are raised in this particular society or mm. Hispanics for that matter, or, or poor whites. And so mm. I had a very kind of like blessed and isolated, I think existence mm. in many respects. But when you look at the truth, where's the distribution of folks? Mm. It's mm. like, how many Oprah's are there, right? How many, how many LeBron's mm. are there? And like, mm. even if everybody could play ball, it's like, there's not that many teams, right? So it's like all work. <laughs> it's just like, yeah. And, it's like there's no way that, that there's no way that that serves as a model for people getting out of this impoverished situation, which then means that we need some other kind of answer and response to kind of address their their situation. Oh man, that's that's a lot. That's a lot to digest, man. It's you know we we got to let this sort of um, sink in, and yeah. um, but you know just to just to sort of maybe shift shift up just a just a touch now. So the way we roll. Um, you need you need to figure out what the problems are that we all live with. That's you need right. to you need to figure out what the what the what the hope is, what the utopia is, and then you need to figure out how we how we how we get there. Now, one of the things that grounds our work, of course, is that you got to do all of that by being rooted in some evidence, and some of that evidence has to do with trying to get a pulse on the people. Where are the people right now? So just to sort of take us, you know, in a, in, a, in a slightly different direction, but still relevant. So now here we are. We just had this huge presidential election in the United States, historic in many ways. And we see already from, you know, the, the media sources, what the numbers are looking like. What, what's the pulse of the people? Now, we've already sort of begun the process of collecting some data science about what people think about the social, cultural, 
the political, the economic, the need for reform, what they think about the health of democracy. So one point to make very specifically is that it looks like Biden is going to win. Let's say Biden wins, right? We still might worry that democracy is not in the clear. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I know a lot of people are saying, and I feel like this myself, to be honest with you, in a way, this is like a good moment for America because people came out to vote and they came out during a pandemic. They came out when a lot of people were suffering from all kinds of economic hardship because of the pandemic. You know, they came out in droves all over the place to vote in rural counties and urban counties everywhere. So that's like saying something positive, like people value the, the power to vote, the power to participate in some small way in governance. But still, it could be that democracy is, is, is teetering on the brink. So maybe you can share with our audience a little bit about some of the things that we're discovering right now in real time about the American electorate and some of the conclusions that we sort of are drawing from this data. Yo, cool. I mean, we'll put all this up on the website and make it available. But um, we did a survey of um, a population that is largely kind of like misunderstood in many respects. But um, we probed it with uh, we probed this population with a bunch of questions that are really asked. But one of the things that kind of jumps out from our piece is like um, 60 to 75 percent. Tell the people about the piece. Tell the people about the piece, first of all, what we call it, where, where they can find it. Uh, my bad, my bad. Um, Trumpism may have endangered our democracy. Um, NewJersey.com. Um, we'll put up the link for that as well um, by you, myself, and um, our boy Method Man, David Armstrong. Um, and so um, the survey reveals um, that something is fundamentally wrong as large numbers of respondents perceive a need for major or minor changes in politics. And so folks believe that there's a necessity for some change. But at the same time, they have very little faith in democracy from the perspective of um, a large percentage of individuals believe that the people that we vote for aren't actually the people that run things. And that is a fundamental problem. So people are participating in the electoral system, for example. So we have a large number of people that are voting relative to American history. But at the same time, the people they actually believe that are running things are not the people that were voting into power. And that distinction is very, very difficult for democracy. Now, again, that's that's taking a minute to process. Yeah, yeah. Right. Because what we're saying is we got record turnout. People are voting. I mean, they're coming out of the woodwork. Now, when you ask them. Or when we ask some of them, at least, what do you, th- who you think you're voting for, or or we ask them like, who you think really has the power? Yeah, they got like a different take on it. We might be voting for Biden, we might be voting for Trump, but really, Trump and Biden don't have the power. They're not running the show. That's powerful. That's powerful. Now the other thing is, okay, well, what should we do about it? Should we sort of should we change the way we select our leaders? Now, we also dealt with that question. What do we find there in terms of what people think about how we select our leaders? Some folks were ready to roll with literally the idea that um, 
we ask the question, some, sometimes um, elections result in bad outcomes. And would you, uh, would you accept um, an alternative way of selecting our leaders? And we're talking 40 to 50% of folks are ready to roll with that, which is, I think, I think a relatively high number, mm-hmm. but um, it, it shows that if you push this idea of, you know, how committed are you to democracy? Mm. How, how committed are you to mm. elections and the electoral system and the way that people are being represented? Mm. That when you start to pick, when you start to pick at that particular thing, the commitment is relatively low in part, I think maybe because of this other pivot, because mm. they don't necessarily believe that the people that we're electing, the people we see in front of us mm. aren't the people that are actually running how our lives are functioning. And there's so there's a disjuncture between the political representative system mm. and the social or economic power that exists behind it. So listen, I mean, I'm, I know I'm stretching out beyond what we, we've supported with some of the evidence that we've collected, science, but Allow me to do this for a minute, just just for a minute. You know, I'm sitting in my armchair, man, here at home, and you know how philosophers get when they get in the armchair, man. They <laughs> be all over the place, man. I'm, I'm, I'm strapped into the armchair, bro. You know, I got me some tea. We'll and, bring you uh, back to earth. We'll yeah, I'm just gonna, earth. I'm just yeah. gonna fly. Let me fly for a minute, science. You know, just let your brother fly for a second, man. All right. So, like, I'm thinking right now. So, how do democracies die? Now. Mm. One way they die is if people think, well, damn, I'm voting, but I'm voting for this person. But really, there are these people behind the scenes that are running everything. And if that's true, then in some ways, I mean, maybe we just need to scrap this whole damn thing and, and do another do another thing. And some of the people that we polled said they, there was some openness to having the president, for example, run everything. Yeah. Now, once you make that pivot, you're on the road to authoritarian government. You're on the road to an almighty Leviathan, right? And you know the great political philosopher, English political philosopher, writing during the time of the English Civil War in the early 1700s, Thomas Hobbes, who sort of gave us his meditation on the Leviathan and made a case really for the English crown. You know, and you, 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 you could imagine an argument going like, we, we so dysfunctional, we so screwed up, we so polarized, we need to just say, forget it and let somebody be king. If it's not Trump, it should be somebody else. So democracy could die if we don't do a better job at coming up with a more sophisticated and more accurate diagnosis of where we are, those of us that are in a position to do so. And we, for example, keep going down wrong paths or paths that really don't speak to the current moment. So if we, for example, keep running the culturalist arguments and ignoring the economic ones, and you have an aspiring autocrat that comes along and says, look, y'all not eating, and y'all not eating because people are moving jobs, or y'all not eating because these immigrants are coming in, taking money and food, money out of your pocket and food off your table, and a certain segment of the people are open to that, and then the promise is made that if y'all just let me run the show, I could take care of all that. Mm. And then it's like, yeah, maybe we should just let that happen because then we can eat. Then we could have food. And that really is the beginning of how democracies die, it seems mm. to me. Go wow. ahead, speak to me, man. I know I'm out there right now, but go ahead, Brian. You could bring me back in. 
Well, I'll, I'll, I'll stay out and sage out with you for a second because uh, I, I just thought of Eric Fromm's piece, um, Escape from Freedom. Mm. And I'm just like, he argues that like democracy is tough. Mm. Democracy is difficult. Re- democracy, true democracy requires a great deal from individuals. And it's a heck of a lot easier to exist in an authoritarian system. So mm. he argues that that people who are even free will mm. attempt to move away from that because it's just hard to be in that space. But mm. partly that's a function of how we've been cultivated as democratic citizens. Mm. We've been cultivated in a particular way to make, to, to make this election seem like it's fucking everything. Mm. It's just like, this is all you need to do. And then you could go about your business mm. as opposed to making it seem as if this is one of the things that you do. Mm. It's like, yeah, you, you vote, but you, you do lawsuits, you do town halls, you do protests, you do petitions, you do plebiscites, we need to expand our conception of democratic citizenship to basically help counteract some of these dynamics because we've been placated and put in a situation where it's just like, okay, okay, roll out your citizenship now. Okay, roll it back now. You're done. Mm. And so part of, I mean, the conclusion we have to our op-ed is just like, in many ways, the answer is a simple one. We need to restore the faith of the people in the institutions, individuals, and ideas involved in government. Mm. This would involve a significant amount of transparency with regards to what has and is being done on behalf of the people, but also soliciting the opinions of as many Americans as possible about what has gone on, what needs to be done, and where they want to go. And that is very different from how folks have been cultivated and treated and trained with regards to what's going on. And so I think your comment about how democracies die, part, part of the way democracies die is by limiting our conception of what citizenship is, limiting our conception of what participation is, limiting our conception of exactly what political is and how you are political or are not political. And basically, imagine imagine if people treated their daily economic activities as political. Like mm. you, you, we know the phrase, you vote with your dollars. If, right. people thought, if people thought that they voted with their dollars daily, how mm. much... How much better would things be in the sense of like, I'm not going to I'm not going to give my money to this company that's doing this horrible thing for the environment mm. or that's deleteriously affecting this particular group of people over here. Mm. If we were as careful and deliberate as as we were with our economic vote, as we were with our political vote, mm. we could have a dramatic transformation on things. This is this gets back to buy black. But no, it's just like mm. buy by human. I mean, mm. by mm. by 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 justice. Mm. I mean, we need to fundamentally kind of like pivot off of that to kind of expand our conception of exactly how we mm. wield power in this nation. Oh, man, you got literally, man, I'm sitting here in my armchair. I got chills going through me, man. You know, I'm a Pisces, though, bro. I'm an overly emotional cat, man. You know, the Pisces <laughs> brothers, man. They, they overly emotional, sensitive, man. You know, I've been known to choke up, you know, in public, you know. But right now, man, what you just said sends chills to me. It also makes me think of a lesson that I know you and I so appreciate from Sister Angela Davis, man, and having taught her work. Um, you know, I mean, and, and that's another episode to talk about. Oh, Davis's yeah. legacy, but also it's another episode to talk about the dangers of a user-friendly Angela Davis, right? To oh. use a term, to use a term that you threw out on me the other day, the user-friendly yeah. Angela Davis is like the user-friendly Martin Luther King, but worse yeah. in some sense. If you yeah. can make Angela Davis user-friendly by spending all your time talking about anyway um, prison reform, but not mm-hmm. talking about the homelessness of global capital, then you've accomplished something. 
<laughs> so, but anyway, that's another, we're not even going to get to hit that right now. But the thing that sent chills through me is that one of her lessons, as you and I know, is the, the old guard has to make way for the new, the new guard. And I think the stuff that you just said, like, you know, from buy black to buy human or from buy black to buy justice is something that we're seeing in our really young people in Generation Z, frankly. Mm-hmm. Right. We're seeing that in Generation Z. Right. They, they, they are all about buying human. They all about buying justice. And markets are responding to this, like when they're, when they're setting up their portfolios to, to deal with the oncoming generation that's going to sort of put pressure on where they invest their funds. I think they got this in them. And I think that they have tremendous energy now when we look at some of these protests and the role that they're playing. in. So I think the buy human, the buy just is the way of the future. Mm. And I think we have a lot to learn as older people from Generation Z. And in a way, it really is a shame that, Emma, I mean, we got two men in their 70s that are vying for leadership of the country. No joke. Right? I mean, but that's a whole nother podcast. But I guess the, the thing I want to bring us back to as we sort of round the corner to sort of wrap up. So the title of our, of our episode was The Election, the Policing of Black Politics and How W.E.B. Du Bois's Darkwater Provides the Answer. So just to sort of get that on the table and maybe set it up for future discussion. Yeah. One way to police black politics or to police progressive politics is to, for example, require that people fly the race first flag. If you're not flying the race first flag and you take yourself to be a black political progressive or progressive generally, then we coming after you. Mm, mm, mm. We coming after you on Twitter. We coming after you on Facebook. We going to name call you if you're not flying that flag. Now, that's what you call policing of the politics. Mm. Now, but of course, that policing of the politics means that, you know, you can't get to talk about some of this other stuff that you and I have been trying to sort of bring to life. Now, if you then say, well, look, I'm, I'm not just, we're not just saying you shouldn't do the race first. Some of the great radical thinkers have thought this. So we just saying, let's just, just keep following the tradition. But then you and I, of course, are going to say, what you mean? What tradition? Mm-hmm. Well, Du Bois, for example, The Souls of Black Folk, that tradition. Well, Du Bois wrote Darkwater. It was published 100 years ago this year. And here's a passage. Just, you know, this is just one passage. And of course, there's a lot going on. But let me just start with this. So in this essay called The Souls of White Folk, here's what Du Bois says. Now, he's talking about. He's trying to put together an explanation of what led Europe to turn to Africa and to subsequently rape Africa? What led Europe to turn to India? What led Europe to eventually go to South America? And here's roughly his explanation. It is plain to modern white civilization that the subjugation of the white working classes cannot much longer be maintained. Education, political power, and increased knowledge of the technique and meaning of the industrial process are destined to take to make a more and more equitable distribution of wealth in the near future. The day of the very rich is drawing to a close mm. so far as individual white nations are concerned. But there's a loophole. There's a chance for exploitation on an immense scale for inordinate profit, not simply to the very rich, but to the middle class and to the laborers. This chance lies in the exploitation of darker peoples, 
It is here that the golden hand beckons. So science, man, as you take us home, I want to I want us to think about the beckoning golden hand and what this means for the wisdom of flying the race first flag in this present moment when the wealth gap is like nothing we've ever seen before. Mm. Bring, bring us home man. bring us around the corner and then set us up for next time. man. I mean, what's what's amazing about um, Du Bois is his fundamental understanding of, I mean, the deep root of something, right? So one could be caught by the race first discussion. One could be caught by this kind of culturalist analysis, which keeps you at this kind of skin color evaluation and then grouping people accordingly. But he's just very encompassing, right? I mean, he talks about in uh, of work and wealth, he talks about imperial communal group of master capitalists who are predominantly white, but a national middle class of white, yellow, and brown, and a laboring class of yellow and brown and black. I mean, he's identifying a different prism for how we can evaluate exactly how the world is configured. But that that different prism gets you to think about the problem in a different way, it gets you to think about what resolutions need to be put forward. But just the way he kind of cuts at the core of it, he's just like, okay, well, this other thing, this economic exploitation thing is driving this other thing. It's, it's framing this other thing. It's prompting people to use things in particular ways. And so what is useful about his diagnosis, which sets up everything else that the world he wants to go to and the means for how to get there, his deep-seated evaluation of the kind of economic dynamics of it. I mean, even his piece, I love in Ethiopia, if the slave cannot be taken from Africa, slavery can be taken to Africa. Mm. Now, that's 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 an economic argument. It, it could be framed and justified in some race-like manner, but this was a deep statement for me about how economics is at the core of the problems that people are confronting. And without that understanding, everything else is going to be superficial. Mm. That's deep. Man, that's deep. Well, it sounds like we good, man. It sounds like what we need to do next is to now update this reading of Du Bois and sort of apply it to the present moment, maybe by thinking about the wealth gap and thinking about what demands now we make on the Biden presidency, if indeed Biden is going to be the president, and how to make those demands in a way that forces a reckoning with the kind of diagnosis of the problems we live with that are a truer, we think, reflection on what Du Bois certainly was getting at. The problem of color cast, not in and of itself, but color cast for profit, for dollars, for bank. That's perfect. All right, bro. That's it, man. That's it. If you're interested in a deeper dive into the subject, you can go to see our website, www.doingthenowledge.com. You can hit us up on Twitter at Doing Knowledge or look out what we're doing on Instagram, Doing Knowledge Again. Um, that's the lines. That's the logic and the science for the day. We out. Peace.